us at Grace Redeemer Community Church. And uh, just uh, find it a little strange to preach to the choir, literally preaching to the choir this week. And so it's, uh, it's great to be with you all uh, who are here. And uh, for those of you joining us on Facebook Live, we are delighted that you are here. Uh, these are troubling times, of course, as you know, but uh, as Mike prayed earlier, we do not live in a spirit of fear. Uh, we know that God is in control, uh, and he's got this. So uh, we will uh, follow precautions, but we know that God is sovereign over everything that happens. And so uh, we're going to be continuing our study this morning in the book of Romans uh, in a message that I'm calling uh, Faith Came First, and that is Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. Uh, faith came first. Now, before we get into the message, uh, let's just go to the go to the Lord. And before I do, uh, David, Diana, Taryn, if you happen to be watching, we just want you to know how much we love you, uh, and we just pray God's blessing on you for what you are going through, and uh, we pray God's mercy. Uh, we just pray for uh, the best possible outcome, and uh, we just want you to know that we love you so desperately. Uh, let's go to the Lord. Lord, we, we do lift up uh, David and Diana and Taryn. Uh, we just pray, Lord, for your mercy on this situation, and we lift them up to you, Lord, and we trust them uh, to your uh, loving hands, Lord. Lord, as we uh, come to the word today, we uh, pray that you will be glorified by it, Lord. Please teach us what you have for us in it this morning, Lord, as we, as we talk about faith the, the message is relevant for our time as we deal with the coronavirus, Lord, and, and uh, the fear that might be involved in that. Uh, Lord, help us to understand that faith in you, Lord, our sovereign God, is what we need in this time. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come now and help us to understand what you have for us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was wondering as a uh, thinking about a, 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 an image that would be appropriate for a day like today. And I was thinking, have you ever seen uh, uh, one of those videos or photos of like a scared little boy who's standing on the edge of a pool uh, and he's, he wants to jump in the pool. His father is in the pool waiting to receive him. And yet he's got this uh, internal struggle going on in his, in his mind and in his heart between uh, doubt and fear on the one hand and trust uh, on the other, uh, and, and as the battle goes on, uh, we see what happens as, as the boy ultimately takes the leap and jumps into his father's arms, and even though he may go under the water for a second, he's safe in his father's arms, who pulls him up again. Uh, and so when we see uh, things like that, what we're watching is faith and trust triumphing over fear and doubt. And in the case of a little boy like this who's about to jump in the water, uh, his faith has to come first. And then he jumps. And so that's what we're going to see today as we talk about the faith of Abraham. Uh, before the jump, there has to be faith. And the faith of Abraham is, is what's on our mind today as we approach our passage. But as we begin today, uh, let's remember uh, Paul's thesis statement from Romans chapter 3, verse 28. He says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so everything that Paul has said from that time forward is him basically supporting this thesis statement of his. 
Uh, at the end of chapter 3, uh, we saw several things, that no man can earn his justification by work. Uh, work is excluded. Boasting is excluded because work is simply the work of God the Father. There is none of our work that counts towards our salvation. We learn also that God is both the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentiles. No one can claim to have any advantage because God is God of all. Their Jewishness would not save them. Only faith saves them. And we see that justification by faith does not nullify the law because, in fact, justification by faith is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and everything that was promised in the Old Testament. And the law was only intended to show people the gravity of their sin and their need for a savior. And then Paul moved on to prove his point using Abraham as an illustration that justification is not by works, it's by faith. Because Abraham was justified when he believed God's promises and God credited it to him as righteousness. And that was before Abraham did anything in obedience uh, to the Lord that could be considered meritorious towards salvation. And so in our passage today, uh, we're going to see that in addition to works not doing anything to justify Abraham, neither does circumcision and neither does the law, but only by believing by faith in God's promises. Uh, God was like the parent in the pool to Abraham. Abraham had to have faith first, and then he leaped into the pool and jumped into God's arms. And so let's ask the question first then, has God limited his blessing to the circumcised? And we'll read Romans 4, verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How was it then credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul's argument here is that God's blessing is not limited only to the circumcised Jews. And he reminded them here, uh, paraphrasing Genesis 15, 6, uh, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And of course, it should have been obvious to any Jew uh, that that was true, uh, especially when they thought about their history, when they thought about Abraham's history, it would be obvious uh, that God uh, justifies the uncircumcised as well as the circumcised, because God justified Abraham by faith long before the, God's covenant of circumcision and before the law. So let's briefly sketch the history of Israel and Abraham's life so we can see this clearly. Uh, we know that God sent the flood in Genesis 6 to 8, uh, wiping out all the wickedness of mankind. And uh, he allowed eight people to survive, Noah, his wife, and Noah's three sons, and their wives. Uh, and then in chapters 9 and 10 of Genesis, they repopulate the earth. And then in chapter 11, we are introduced to Abraham and to his father, Terah, and to Sarah, uh, his wife-to-be. Well, Abraham uh, was a descendant of, his, of, of Shem, who came off uh, the boat with Noah, uh, and he lived with Terah, his father, in a land called Ur. But then Terah picked up his family and he moved them to Haran, uh, intending eventually to move to Canaan. 
Uh, but uh, Terah died in uh, Haran. And it was then in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord came to Abraham uh, and made certain promises to Abraham. Uh, he told Abraham to go to a land that he would show him. And God made promises of land and descendants and other blessings to Abraham at that time. And so Abraham went uh, to a land that God would show him, and that was Canaan. And Abraham was 75 years old at that time, and, Ab and uh, Sarah was 65. In Genesis 12 through 14, uh, the end of Genesis 12, we see uh, Abraham wandering down to the Negev uh, and into Egypt and then back to the Negev and back to Canaan. And then in Genesis 15, God spoke to Abraham again, this time saying in verses 1 through 6, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Verses 4 to 6, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we don't know exactly how old uh, Abraham was at the time when uh, that righteousness was credited to him. Uh, but what we do know is that he was no older than 86 years old because in Genesis chapter 16, we're told that Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael, the illegitimate son uh, of his union with Hagar, Sarah's maid, uh, happened. And though, Abram, or though uh, Abraham's uh, belief uh, didn't waver, his uh, understanding of how God was going to fulfill the promise uh, most certainly was wrong. He got that wrong. He thought that he could hurry God along, but that turned out not to be true. And so what the Hagar and Ishmael episode teaches us is that uh, we are not going to understand God perfectly, and we are not going to live our lives completely without sin uh, for the rest of our lives. Uh, we are going to become more holy, but we're not going to be sinless. And so Abraham suffered the consequences of his sin uh, through marital strife, uh, through having to send Ishmael and Hagar uh, away from his home. But Abraham did not lose the blessing of righteousness that God had already credited to him because of his faith. When, uh, in, Ge in Genesis 17, Ishmael was 13 years old, that would make uh, Abraham 99 because he was 86 when Ishmael was born, then God gave the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham circumcised himself and he circumcised his whole household. Everybody in the house was circumcised. But Abraham was justified by faith 13 years before circumcision, and so we know that justification does not depend on circumcision. God had already declared him righteous, and so Paul's answer to his own question, was Abraham credited with righteousness while circumcised or while uncircumcised? Well, the answer is obvious. It's while uncircumcised. And so how is righteousness credited then? Is it through circumcision or is it through faith? Well, Obviously, it's through faith because circumcision hadn't been given yet. And so faith happened before circumcision. And in fact, 
And when you think about it, Abraham was not even a Jew when he was circumcised. Have you ever thought about that? There was no such thing as Jew and Gentile before the covenant of circumcision. There were only people. Uh, and that is when God marked out a people for himself. And he said, this is how you shall be identified by circumcision. Uh, and so that was their particular uh, identity, which was what separated Jews from Gentiles. And so that was when God carved out a special people for himself. But before then, Abraham was uncircumcised. And so faith is credited to him while uncircumcised, which shows that faith is available to everyone, even if they are uncircumcised. Now, the Jews thought that their uh, circumcision was a work uh, that merited justification. And they thought that uh, by circumcision, they marked themselves out as God's special people and that they were entitled, therefore, to God's blessing. And that's not how righteousness works. We're never entitled to it. It's a gift from God. And Paul proved here that uh, the blessings that Abraham received were not exclusive to the Jews. They were available to anyone because Abraham received this blessing by faith and not by circumcision. In fact, years before circumcision. And so that makes Abraham not only the father of the Jews, uh, but the father of all who believe. He's the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness might be credited to them. But he's also the father of those who are circumcised. But read the verse carefully. It says, to those who are circumcised, but also have the faith of our father Abraham. And so what is important here is the faith. The Jews were circumcised, but circumcision did not guarantee their justification. They still needed to have the faith of Abraham. Now, Paul said in Galatians 3.17, those who, who believe are the children of Abraham. And so the Jews thought that being a physical descendant of Abraham was all that mattered. And Paul is showing throughout this passage that it's actually being a spiritual descendant of Abraham that's important. Those who believe with the faith that Abraham had, those are the true sons of Abraham. And so Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 9. He said, is it not the natural children of Abraham who are God's children? But it is the, he said, it's not the natural children of Abraham who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And we see that Abraham's uh, circumcision was just a sign and a seal of the justification that he already possessed before those things. So faith is everything. Circumcision without faith is nothing. Well, if circumcision was no advantage to the Jew, well, what about the law? That was their special provision too. That was given to them by God, not to the Gentiles. So did having the law or keeping the law guarantee anybody's justification? And the answer is obviously no. So how do the true sons of Abraham receive God's promise? Verses 13 to 15. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. So Paul had already made the case uh, earlier in chapter 3 uh, that the law is not of any value to them uh, for their salvation. First, because the law wasn't meant to save, right? It was meant to point them to their sins. Secondly, uh, the they didn't keep the law perfectly. So uh, the law condemns and it points them to their need for a savior. 
And so for all these reasons, the people who had the law couldn't be saved by the law. But now he comes at it from a completely different angle because now he's talking about the chronology, the history of Israel. There wasn't even law when Abraham was saved. So how could the law save Abraham? Circumcision came at least 13 years before Abraham, but uh, the law came at least 400 years after Abraham at a minimum. And so uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, which Galatians uh, 17, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 uh, quotes, it says that the law came 430 years after God's promise and his justification. So how can Abraham's salvation depend on keeping the law? Obviously, it can't because it preceded the law by centuries. Now we're talking about God's promise in verse 13 for the promise to Abraham. That's God's promise. And God's promise is very significant uh, in Paul's argument in Romans. Uh, he mentioned it for the first time here uh, in the whole book of Romans, but he mentions it five times in chapter 4 alone, starting with this mention. And God's promise was that Abraham would be the father of descendants too numerous to count uh, and that he would have uh, land uh, more than he could imagine, the entire land of Canaan, that there would be other promises and other blessings that followed as well. Well, those promises that God made to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, in chapter 15 of Genesis, in chapter 17 of Genesis, those were all unconditional promises. They were not conditioned on Abraham doing anything. God did not say, if you do A, B, and C, then I will give you descendants too numerous to mention, or all the land that you could possibly occupy and other blessings. He simply promised to bless Abraham. So how can the promise depend on the law that hadn't even been given yet? Uh, as if the promise depended on Abraham's obedience to something that didn't exist. It doesn't make any sense. And this is Paul's argument to the Jews. So if I say to my family, uh, I'm going to buy us uh, tickets to opening day uh, for Texas Rangers baseball. Uh, and I say that I'm going to do that. And then I say uh, a week later, perhaps, uh, you know, I'm going to buy those tickets. But first, I need you to clean your room. And I need you to pick up around the house. And I need you to uh, be more obedient to me. And I need you to do this and that. Well, what have I done? I have nullified the promise because I've made it conditional on the things that I am requiring them to do. And I'm, I'm making them earn the tickets now by work and conditions that I have now imposed on them. And so not only that, but their faith in me becomes worthless because I have made them a promise, but now I've attached conditions to it. So what is the value of my promise? I've, I've in, fact, in effect turned an unconditional promise into a conditional promise that I will fulfill if first they do X, Y, and Z. And so now the tickets are not a generous gift from a loving father, but they are uh, a wage earned by the people uh, that I've promised them to by work. And that's why God's promise cannot be contingent on obedience to the law. For the one thing, the law came after the promise. But even more important than that, no one can keep the law. So God would never have to fulfill his promise. So if he makes a promise that he knows he's never going to have to fulfill, the promise is worthless. And it's especially worthless if it's contingent on people being required to keep the law that no man can keep. Paul said, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, he said, If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. And so we see the exclusivity uh, between the law and the promise. They're two separate things. Uh, John Stott, a famous commentator, said it like this. 
law and promise are incompatible realms of instrumentality. Both have their place, but they cannot coexist in the same domain. Law language, you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language, I will, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not, obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you. Believe my promise. And so uh, it's very well said to show that the law and the promise are incompatible. And so what we see in our verses is that the law can only bring about God's wrath because it was intended to reveal transgressions. It was not intended to save. Like if you go into a dark cave at night and you bring a flashlight with you, what are you doing? You're looking into the dark corners to see all the scary creatures that are hiding there so you don't have to be bitten by them. That's what we're doing. Uh, and so that's what the law does. It reveals uh, what, is, what is dark and scary in our lives. And, and it demands uh, God's wrath because wherever there are transgressions, God's wrath has to follow. So if there's no law, there is no violation. We can't violate uh, something where there is no law. So uh, if a road has no speed limit, for example, I can go as fast as I want. No matter how fast I go, there is no law that I'm violating. But as soon as you post a sign, 65 miles per hour or whatever it is, now there is a law that can be broken. And so what we see is that uh, the true sons of Abraham receive God's promise, not by law, but by faith. And in fact, God's promise is guaranteed by faith and by grace, verses 16 and 17. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with, with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And so what we see is that grace and faith work together. God gives grace. People receive grace by faith. A picture God throwing a baseball to you. Now that's grace as the ball is coming your direction. Now you have your catcher's mitt and you extend your arm to catch the ball. That is faith. That is grace and faith working together. And so one commentator said, grace gives and faith receives. And I think that's a beautiful way to illustrate how they work together. And what we see uh, with Paul's uh, discussion here is that where, the, uh, where circumcision and the law divided Jew and Gentile, the gospel unites. It allows Jew and Gentile to receive God's promises by faith. And so no one is excluded. And this has been Paul's point all along. Grace is available to all. It can be received by faith. And that's how Abraham can be called the father of all who believe. Uh, in verse 16, this word descendants in verse 16 is from the Greek word sperma, uh, and it literally means seed. And, and that word is a very important word uh, in the promise passages in Genesis. Paul also uses it here in Romans. He uses it several times uh, in Galatians. Uh, seed is how it's often translated. And, and seed to an Israelite meant physical descendants of Abraham. And what Paul is showing here is that it's a spiritual usage. It's not the physical descendants of Abraham who are the children of the promise. It's the spiritual descendants, those with the faith of Abraham. Those are the ones who receive God's promise. And so clearly, God's blessing is not limited to the Jews. 
And then in verse 17, Paul quoted Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, to prove his point. He says, A father of many nations have I called you, not just one nation, but many nations. And then in the second half of verse 17, Paul calls God the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, in the context of Abraham, think about Abraham's faith. Uh, he is 100 years old, and he says his body is as good as dead. Uh, Sarah is 90 years old. Her womb is as good as dead. It is lifeless. Uh, and then uh, we have to realize that, that considering the deadness of Abraham and the deadness of Sarah's womb, uh, God takes both of those things, and he makes life out of those things, and he calls into being that which does not exist. And so Abraham believed God anyway, even though he knew his body and Sarah's body were as good as dead. And then God brought forth the child of the promise. And we'll specifically talk more about Abraham's faith uh, next time as we, as we review that story. Uh, but what Paul is trying to teach us here is that we are justified by faith, not by works, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. And grace is offered to everyone and anyone can receive it. Faith is the gateway to salvation. So think of it like this. There is a gate, and uh, the gate opens to a road. Now, faith is, uh, the, the gate It represents initial faith, our initial justification. And then the road represents the road, the life of faith that we walk after we are saved. And so Abraham was justified by faith. That's the gate. The life he led afterwards is the road. That's his life of faith. And remember, Abraham was not perfect, right? His faith was far from perfect. He twice lied about Sarah being his wife, called him his sister instead to save his own skin. Uh, he uh, jumped God's promise by uh, having a child with Hagar rather than waiting for God to fulfill the promise through Sarah. But overall, he lived a life by faith, becoming more and more uh, uh, sanctified in his life. Uh, and the culmination, the, the, the ultimate representation of his faith was when he offered uh, Isaac on the altar in Genesis chapter 22 because God commanded it. And so the faith of Abraham is the faith that we walk as we walk down this road of life after our justification. And as we speak about faith, uh, we have never needed it more than we need it in our world today. Our world has been completely turned upside down since last week, since the World Health Organization called the coronavirus a pandemic. Uh, immediately, sports teams shut down, uh, the NBA shut down, followed by the NCAA tournament and baseball season and everything else. There's no more sports. Uh, businesses closed, schools closed, and, and look at us here. We can't even gather publicly uh, in church anymore uh, except for people uh, less than 10. And so even high-profile doctors are telling us that the worst may be yet to come. And so as we think about that, uh, I'll just ask you, are you scared? Uh, do you feel like the world is out of control? Do you think like coronavirus is out of control? Do you feel like the world as you know it is lost forever, that we're never gonna get our world back like we used to have it? As we think about questions like that, we have to ask ourselves, how do we exercise the faith of Abraham in these troubling times? How do we just believe God uh, even when we are uncertain? Well, I want us to, to hear uh, two things to remember 
and one thing that we can do in these troubling times. The first thing is to remember that God is sovereign. We have to remember that God is sovereign. And that means that nothing can happen. Nothing can happen. Do we understand that? Nothing can happen before it passes through his hands. Nothing can happen that he does not allow. And that means that God is in control. The coronavirus is not in control. And even though the doctors don't yet have it under control, God is still in control. God ordains whatever comes to pass, Ephesians 1, chapter 11. All things are his servants, Psalm 119, verse 91. So what should our response to the coronavirus be in light of God's sovereignty? Well, we should exercise the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God's promises, and a promise is only as good as the character of the one making the promise. And Abraham trusted God's character, and he had evidence to trust God's character, and so do we. In fact, think about how much more evidence we have uh, than Abraham had. Think about the lengths that God went to save you and me. Uh, Some of us could tell incredible stories about our lives before Christ and now our lives after Christ. What a difference he makes. Think about his son dying on the cross for our sins so that we might have eternal life. Think about the trouble that he has rescued you from after you've been a Christian and even before you were a Christian when you didn't even know his name. Why would he do something like that? It's because he loves you, first of all, and because he's mighty to save Second of all, he is sovereign, he is powerful, and he loves you. And so God is sovereign over every single thing that happens in this world, and that includes the coronavirus. So remember that God is sovereign. Second, remember that God has a plan. God has a plan. Now, it would be nice if God told us what his plans were, but God doesn't always tell us what his plans were, does he? Uh, Job lived his entire life, uh, and God never told him the reason why he suffered. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to God. But what we do know is that God does not react to things that happen, right? God ordains the things that happen, so it's not a reaction. He ordains what happens, and he works all that happens into the fabric of his will. And we don't know whether God intends this coronavirus for discipline, for judgment, to bring revival, for some combination of the three. We just don't know why God has brought the coronavirus. But let's ask, would God be unjust to judge the world by the coronavirus? Of course not. We have drifted so far from God, uh, not only in America, but in the entire world, that we act like he doesn't even exist anymore. And so, Uh, America is not even close to to a godly nation anymore, but where else would you go? The whole world is ungodly at this time. What if God has said, enough, Uh, I promised I will never bring another flood to destroy the world, but I will judge the world uh, through the coronavirus, and and I will do it to turn the world back to me. What if he's using the coronavirus to bring us to our knees, to stop relying on the things of the world, finding our hope and satisfaction in the stuff of the world and instead intends that we turn back to rely on him? What if he has brought the coronavirus and allowed it to cause us to turn back to him in repentance and to cause revival throughout the world? Now, I can't stand up here and tell you specifically why God has allowed the coronavirus at this time, but I know that he has a plan. 
And I know that God promises to work all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that's you, and that's me, uh, and everyone who's watching who uh, loves God and calls Jesus Savior. He has a plan, and he's working it out. He doesn't want us to live in fear. He does want us to use caution and to listen to our health professionals, but God doesn't want us to panic and go to the store and buy all the toilet paper so I can't get any. Uh, he wants us to live in a trust in him, like the childlike faith of Abraham who simply believed God. God has a plan for the coronavirus. He's sovereign over it, and when it's over, I pray uh, that we'll be able to look back and see all the things that God accomplished through it uh, in hindsight that we don't have today. Uh, God is already accomplishing great things. Uh, we're already hearing about slowing down their own lives, spending more time with family, uh, reaching out, uh, helping uh, fellow neighbors, uh, things that uh, we don't do because we're so busy all the time. And so uh, we have to understand that God has a plan. So that's two things to remember and now one thing to do, and that's to grow in intimacy with God. Grow in intimacy with God. You know, most of us now are more or less on lockdown, right? Restaurants are closed. Uh, movie theaters are closed. Uh, we can't gather together socially. We can't even have the whole congregation uh, together in church this morning. Uh, David wrote, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. Now, when is the last time you could say that your soul panted for the Lord God like you would die of hunger or thirst if you didn't have some of God? Our lives are so busy. We have a long checklist of things that we have to get done every day, and we are slaves to our checklist. But now the checklist is gone, right? We can't do anything. We're stuck in our houses. We can do whatever we can do on the computer. But that's all that we can do. And so many of us are severely restricted. And this, this new term, social distancing, uh, has, has uh, become a part of our lexicon now. If you folks on Facebook could see what I'm looking at, we have everybody spaced out at least six feet apart, uh, practicing good social distancing here. Uh, that's what our lives have turned to uh, at this moment. And so uh, he's, he's, he's given us this coronavirus for a reason, and he, he wants to use it, I think, to help us to grow in intimacy with him. So what if God wants to use the coronavirus to cause all of us to slow down, uh, to take time to worship him? Uh, even though we have to be socially distant from each other for a time, we don't have to be spiritually distant to him. We can draw closer to him during this time. So use the time that you used to spend running errands and checking things off your checklist and going to the store and even coming to church, uh, running errands. Spend that time growing in intimacy with God. Pray for relief from the coronavirus. Pray for the people you love. Pray for those in high-risk categories. Uh, my heart goes out to the people who are suffering with cancer and, and other uh, diseases at this moment who, uh, that, that has made their immune systems uh, so much more susceptible to the coronavirus. So not only are they dealing with the disease, but they're dealing with the, the fear that the coronavirus might come into their house and weaken them even further. So pray for those people. Pray for the world. Pray for revival. Pray for God's will to be accomplished Recognize that it's not necessarily God's will for us that we be happy all the time or that we even be healthy all the time, but that we would be holy 
And holiness in this crisis means that we turn back to God, that we respond with the faith of Abraham, uh, that we would grow in our love and trust of God, that we would become more like his son, Jesus, as we trust him in this crisis. A true faith is going to show itself in obedience, in prayer, in trust, and in faith. So grow in intimacy with God during this crisis, like Abraham had his faith. So let's ask God, uh, what, do, what, what do you want us to learn from this God? Uh, what is it that uh, I can do in this crisis? Who are the people that I can help in this crisis? Remember that the coronavirus is not eternal, but God is. God is eternal. And he will end the coronavirus when his, when his plan for it is accomplished. And I pray that he finds us faithful as we wait. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this model of the faith of Abraham, Lord, uh, who didn't have a whole lot of information about you, Lord, uh, but yet he trusted in you and you credited it to him as righteousness. Help us, Lord, to have the faith of Abraham during these trying times. Lord, help us to know that you have a plan and that you are sovereign and that you love us and that nothing will happen outside of your allowing it. Lord, we trust you. We love your son who died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we thank you so much for that incredible gift of grace that we have received by faith. Lord, grant to us even greater faith during this time. And may we come to love you and trust you more through this crisis. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.